Among my favorite classes that I took at Yale Divinity School was Old Testament Interpretation Part 1, taught by Robert Wilson. Professor Wilson taught at YDS for almost 50 years before retiring at the end of the spring 2020 semester. He's a widely renowned biblical scholar, an ordained minister in the Disciples of Christ tradition, and the most old school professor you can imagine. He would walk into the lecture hall and at 10.30 on the dot would begin his characteristic drawl of, okay, folks, and he would lecture for 50 minutes straight. You almost got the sense that he didn't really care if there were people to listen or not. He had a story and he was going to tell it follow it through to the end. But it was this story that absolutely captivated my heart and soul and shaped the trajectory of all of my theology and ministerial preparation moving forward. When I signed up for classes that first semester, I reluctantly registered for this Old Testament introductory course. I had grown up believing that other than a few scattered stories that were kind of fun to learn about in Sunday school, The Old Testament was nothing but records of a scary, angry, vengeful God and ridiculous laws that no one could could possibly keep. Have you ever thought or felt this before? Have any of you tried to read through the whole Bible straight through on your own but gotten tripped up when you got to Leviticus or Judges or Kings, all those lists of laws and lists of people and you know, who served for how many years and their names recorded in the books of history. This tends to be what broad Christian and even secular American culture thinks of these biblical books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament God does not have a great public reputation. But the story that Professor Wilson shaped across the 12 weeks of this course changed the entire way I view God and our scripture. He narrates the entirety of the Hebrew Bible as a complex book that records the most intimate, loving relationship possible between an oppressed, lost, and confused people and their God who yearns only to be in relationship with them. A God who created humanity because that God wanted to love and be loved, to know and be known. A God who tried through experimentation, trial, and error to figure out exactly what the relationship between God and people would look like. A God who desired dialogue and interaction, not mindless obedience, but engagement. A God who could see all the tendencies towards selfishness and violence that existed in the hearts of the people with free will, and yet never stopped loving those people and trying again and again to draw near to them. The way that I previously understood these books, that negative outlook on them, is one part of a harmful biblical worldview called supersessionism. What that means is the belief that the incarnation of Jesus and the whole of the New Testament scripture have replaced the religion of Israel. There was something wrong with Judaism, so Christianity fixed it, or at least completed it. It shouldn't be hard to see how this contributes to anti-Semitism in our world today. It's even reflected in how we refer to this collection of texts, 
calling it the Old Testament can suggest that it is both worn out and incomplete, rather than a holy book on its own for a rich tradition that continues to hold it as sacred. We as Christians ought to look at the New Testament not as a departure, but as a deepening of all the same content that was present in the Hebrew Bible. God's steadfast love continued to the point that God chose to take on a human body, to be even closer, as close as was possible to the experience of humanity, to know us intimately and to love us not as a faraway God, but as a God who walked alongside us. We as Christians see in a man called Jesus a human incarnation of the God who came to know humanity through the generations of our Jewish forebears. We profess that the same God who preached the Sermon on the Mount, who turned water into wine, who broke bread and gave it to the disciples, that same God also walked alongside Adam and Eve in Eden, led the Israelites through the dark wilderness, and dwelled in the temple among the people. We can celebrate this experience of God while also proclaiming our continued connection to our siblings who have experienced God in different ways without having to demonize their truths. Now, all of this is at least partly to say that since you're stuck with my preaching for the next month, you're going to hear a lot of scripture from the Hebrew Bible instead of from the Gospels. I hope that this is a helpful and engaging way to delve into some of our less studied and less well-known scriptures to see the enduring love of God that is present in all of them. And in this passage from Deuteronomy, it is particularly notable. These words come in the final chapter of the presentation of the law to Israel through Moses. The last words that God presents to the people on Mount Sinai before Moses appoints his successor and then records the words of the law. God assures the people that God takes delight in prospering them, so long as they keep the commandments. This sounds like a tall order. After all, Moses has just finished reciting all of the law found in the Torah, and there's quite a lot of it. But God goes on to say that this commandment is not too hard for you. One singular commandment, this commandment. The law of Israel is not a list of hundreds of random rules, but many different facets of the one important commandment. And this is from the beginning of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the original covenant, the covenant that was entered into when Abraham answered God's call to go and continued as the people did their best to honor, serve, and know their God. This is the underlying commandment that carries through from the Hebrew Bible all the way to the New Testament. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is asked what the most important commandment is, he answers with that quotation, love the Lord your God, and secondarily, Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So that's it. The entirety of the Bible, both the Jewish and Christian scriptures, can be summed up in just one word. Love. 
the loving relationship between God and humanity. Humanity will try and fail, will make mistakes, but what God asks of them is to remain in loving relationship and to do their best to uphold their end of that covenant. And it matters that it is a covenant, not a contract. It is not made null and void when we don't measure up. God continues loving us and wanting the best for us. Oh, thank you so much. God continues to love us and want the best for us. And we get the chance to try again to live up to our end of the agreement. To love God enough to listen when God speaks, to tell God how we feel, to push back when something feels wrong, to make God the very center of our imperfect human lives. This is what God promises Israel. God will be there and uphold God's end of the covenant and give the people the chance to try again. God is not far away, separated from us by veils of holiness, holiness or mazes of making the right choices, doing the right thing all the time. God is within our very hearts and at the center of who we are. God is as close as the next breath you take, as the next word you speak, as the next song you sing and the next prayer you whisper. God is here with you. And all God desires is that you yearn for that closeness like God does and that you live in the knowledge that God is as close as can possibly be. This reassurance is not one that is at odds with the law given in the Hebrew Bible. Rather, these instructions were given in a specific setting to a specific audience in the hopes that it would guide them to living as if God is present in their communities, their actions, their very bodies, because God was and is present. In his writings about meditation and prayer included in the book, The Creative Encounter, Christian theologian and mystic Howard Thurman writes about meditation and prayer as disciplines for closeness to God. He also reflects on this in a book called Meditations of the Heart, which our women's spirituality group has read sections of over this, this past year. He writes of an island of peace at the very center of one's soul. An island not only where there is peace, but where God dwells. In the center of our being, we come face to face with the God who lives deep within us. Or as Christian mystic Meister Eckhart describes it, a spark of the divine in each soul. God is not only with us, but within us, closer than any friend or loved one can ever be. When we come to our inmost selves, we find that God is there and knows the depths of our hearts. Not only that, but the covenant between God and all creation are actually living within our bodies, within our comings and goings through life. How does it change the ways that we think about the world and our role in it if we remember that each time we speak, the eternal love of God is embodied in what we say? That each time we act, God's love is there, living and moving in what we do. 
Closeness with God is not about finding some other far-off, better version of yourself. It is about finding the deepest, truest version of yourself and trusting that God is there and is able to work amazing things through you. You don't have to travel far and wide to find that divine call or send someone on your behalf to figure it out for you. The most beautiful holy love is at the very core of your being. Amen.